Hello and welcome back to Halfway History. It has been quite a while and we're going to open up season two. So I'm just going to get some things out of the way right now. Uh, it's been a while. Definitely has and that's partially my fault. Been a little lazy and on my last episode I mentioned that I have time off so I'm going to be able to start producing episodes more. Well, I never really got around to doing that and that's my fault. I'll admit it, that one's on me. But I am now starting the second season, finally. And as I speak, I'm currently on break from school due to COVID-19 or the coronavirus. And that's no bueno at all, but definitely is a boost to this podcast. I also said last time we'd be covering ancient empires and like classical ages such as Rome and Greece but I realized that I don't really have the facilities right now to make to make it really good or even the resources so I compiled the resources that I do have and I decided to switch up season two instead of classical empires of antiquity which most likely most likely no promises will be season three uh, I am doing World Industries, and today is episode one of season two of Halfway History, The Ice Trade. So, let's think about it. Where do you get your ice? Pretty simple answer. The freezer or your fridge. And we really take that for granted. You get a cup of water, put some ice in it. Get a cup of tea, put some ice in it. Oh, your coffee's a bit too hot? Put some ice in it. We just take that thing for granted. But it used to be a serious industry. Ice has always been sort of a very valuable commodity, dating all the way back to the Romans. I mean, it was always an elites would have uh, ice and snow f to, to stay cool for cooling their beverages or cooling rooms, whatever they decided to use it for. Uh, like, usually... If you look at the example of the Romans, in the Alps, ice and snow was gathered from those mountains in the winter and then stored and used during early uh, spring and maybe even early summer before it was gone. And most northern nations, such as maybe Russia or Sweden, Finland, Norway, the Scandinavians... They had their ice trade, the ice and snow was a bit more accessible to people. And a perfect example of this would be Russia. Uh, you look at the city today, St. Petersburg, uh, at the time, Novgorod, um, the ice was being harvested and stored in the city for public use. And it wasn't really a commodity then. It was just, oh, well, go get some ice. You know, people, people would volunteer to go get some ice out of the... Uh, river and put it in the ice house and it wasn't just exclusive to Russia India and many of the princes in northern India and Nepal would get their ice from the Himalayas and even in winter nights they would lay out little straws and filled with filled with water and collect bits of ice there and that was kind of the first form of artificial ice harvesting ever really recorded and Later in Europe, uh, they would use a basic form or a very primitive form of sulfuric acid to cool their drinks, which isn't maybe the healthiest option, but 
who am I to judge? But in the 1830s, this man in New England uh, named Frederick Tudor had a great idea. What about trying to sell ice instead of making it a local market, making an international market? And he started by purchasing ice farmers in New England and basically created a monopoly on the American ice business and sold it primarily to the southern elite who saw it as a luxury good and mainly out of the port of Boston and shipping to Charleston. He would then build an ice depot in Havana, which really expanded the ice trade to limits it hasn't really seen. And in Havana, uh, the ice went for today's terms $4.50 to $5 per pound, and roughly 3,000 tons of ice was being moved out of Boston every single year. So as he continued to build his business, British uh, business owners who were into the local ice trade started to catch on, and they kind of formed up with Tudor and made a much more globalized and international ice trade. Uh, shipping to places as far as Calcutta, India, which was, which boomed the ice trade as the East India Company at the time had no reason to regulate it, which was why it did so well. Because it was one of the few products that the East India Company, that mainly dealt with tea and pretty much ran British India, uh, they didn't tax it they had no reason to tax they didn't see a reason to tax it so it did super super well and profits from a single ship in india made upwards of a quarter of a million dollars and tudor alone made 4.7 million dollars in just five years of opening the markets up to india and then later of course with the success of india they would expand to australia and to brazil and a little side note about selling to Brazil, they not only sold ice, they sold chilled apples, which were just apples among the ice that would just get cold and would freeze. And apparently that was super popular in Brazil, maybe because it preserved the apples or it just, you know, was tasty. I don't know. I've never had a chilled apple. Well, from there, the ice trade seems to evolve people start to catch on and be like hey this is this is kind of good like this is where it's at and you definitely see an opening in russian markets uh and the russian ice trade business which was not as centralized and not as big as maybe the um american ice trade company uh but definitely had its regions uh such as one out of then now saint petersburg or moscow and maybe Tsaritsyn, which is near the Volga River in southern Russia, starting to sell to the rest of Europe, while uh, ports such as Vladivostok on the Pacific Ocean would start selling to other nations such as China, Japan even, and then later would compete for the West, like the American markets in the West. And that was the main competitor was uh, the Russian ice businesses and New York because it started in New England. It started in Maine and shifted into New York. And New England, including New York, 
were the epicenter of the ice trade for the majority of its existence. But later, the process of trying to travel and send ice to mainly the Nevada Territory from uh, Russia was relatively difficult because you had to cross the Pacific, go across California to Nevada, and then from New York all the way to Nevada in the 1850s, the railroad really wasn't a thing yet, and even if it did, it could only go so far. And that really put a slow on the growth of the American ice business, as Nevada, being a hot, deserty area, really, really loved its ice. And generally, the creation of new ice companies just swelled the ice economy and created a boom like never seen before. And... um as I mentioned in the beginning, with uh, as railroads started to expand, you see ports, and I shouldn't say ports, but epicenters of ice depots in Chicago and New York. And the Chicago is mainly being supplied from uh, lakes in Minnesota and Wisconsin and was huge in supplying Kansas, St. Louis, uh, Louisiana, south like that and nearly completely cut off new york from the rest of the west but the new york but new york uh ice secured a railway from to their current depots to nevada and other western territories completely blowing up that economy as well and it just continued to grow and grow and grow except it slowed down a little bit uh and slightly dipped during the Indian rebellions of 1857 and later the American Civil War. And in America, the ice trade was absolutely massive. While in Europe, Britain kind of lost its standing as being one of the great ice traders, and so did Russia, falling far, far behind Norway, making ice one of its largest commodities. Norway's largest commodities around the 18. Uh, 50s, 60s, and 80s, and 70s were tim timber, ice, and that's pretty much it. Nothing else was really as big, maybe fish, but even then, those that was smaller compared to timber and ice. And while Norway became its largest producer, France became its largest consumer, buying it from England, buying it from uh, Switzerland, from Vienna from Russia, from Norway, with the boom of business, tends to come innovation. And you see, especially near the peaks, around 1880 to 1900, you see ice plants start to develop. And especially in warmer areas, where you don't have to wait till winter to harvest the ice, but you can make it yourself. And you start to see that in out west, in America, Australia, Calcutta, India. And while that sort of shrinked uh, New York Ice and the American Ice Company and Norway a little bit, it's still, as a general for the ice economy, it boomed. And as a commodity, it was among the ranks of grain, steel, and oil, and even timber. And it was insane how much was sold by the peak of production roughly 660 million dollars 
was put into the ice business. And by 1880, summer heat was at its highest it's been in a long time, creating a massive surge in demand for ice, shooting up its stock. And, and to prepare for hotter summers down the line, ice production was ramped up. But unfortunately, in the 1890s, a record-setting cool summers struck especially America and really started to plummet uh, the ice as a commodity. And it was the beginning of the end for the ice trade. And many, many businessmen just were completely ruined by the plummeting on the ice stock. And it contributed to the economic crash of 1890, which is one of the most violent economic depressions in America. And while the American ice trade slowly faded, the European one had still reached its peak, with roughly 900 million kilograms of ice being exported from Norway by 1890. Well, the American collapse in the ice trade and the American economic depression that hit in 1890 was not only detrimental to the ice trade in America, but to the ice trade around the world. And at the turn of the century, entering into the 20th century, refrigeration technology, where people could make ice at home, had started to become developed. And this really started putting ice traders and ice companies out of business, and it drastically, drastically dropped. And especially the German, especially during World War One, um, in Europe, the ice trade from Norway and Britain was being blockaded by German U-boats and just collapsed the trade. But it did see a surge in the American ice trade with chilling foods being sent to Europe and being sent around the nation. But by the time the war was over, it was a matter of 10 to 15 years before the ice trade had completely phased out, as most Americans had a working refrigerator that could produce its own ice in their house by the 1930s, and most people in Europe by the 1950s. And it's interesting to look back and see this ice trade as something just as it was, magnificent. It was... A commodity as valuable as oil or steel or grain. People just bought ice. Oh, you needed some ice? Well, wait, the ice man's coming. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't quite like that, but you get where I'm coming from. It wasn't something that you just, oh, it's ice. It's something that people had to price out as the same way that we look at oil prices now and gas prices, especially because right now the COVID-19 virus is going around. Gas prices are an all-time low. Like, pretty sure i saw at the gas station the other day a dollar and 66 cents per gallon while my friend in virginia's has 99 cents per gallon it's quite insane to see how we react to the fluctuation of gas prices and how we base that off on how well our economy is doing uh it was the exact same way for ice when ice prices dipped you knew the economy wasn't doing too well but when they soared, the economy was doing fantastic. It's just what it was. It was just how it went. Instead of gas, it was ice. Well, that concludes today's episode on the ice trade. 
starting off season two all about industries. I thought it would be interesting to take a look at the ice trade, a trade and a industry that's not really looked at and really overshadowed, being one of the biggest industries in the world at its time. I'd just like to say thank you again for listening, and thank you for just sticking on through this really, you know, kind of interesting time, as I did say I was going to be putting a lot of episodes out, but unfortunately that's not true due to my own laziness and just other factors but i can tell you this these episodes are going to get higher quality although this one was a little shorter than usual it is still i'd say higher quality than season one the timeline that i proposed at the end of season one may not be super realistic and although that might disappoint some people that might be fine it is what it is, and it's complex, I'll say. Sometimes I go into things saying, oh, I really want to do this, but then halfway through, I'm like, why did I decide to do this? I don't like this, and I stop. It's unfortunate, but I can tell you when I do something and when I upload it, I'm not doing it half-assed. I'm doing it to the best of my ability and what I think it should be. I didn't think I was ready to do classical antiquity and such a huge and expansive topic such as ancient Greece and ancient Rome, and then following that up straight away with pagans such as the Vandals uh, and other uh, Visigoths and Gothics and other such um, peoples like that. I just needed another season just to get more comfortable, get just to get more into the flow of things, and I think industries is just a perfect one to do to start with because there's a lot of information out there and it's not overwhelming much like the classical antiquity would be so i'll just say this again thank you for understanding thank you for listening and this has been jack from halfway history